What is the basis of the urgency of the gospel message? Why is it so important that we wake up and act today? We're going to talk about that and more today on BibleStudyPodcasts.org, starting now. Hello, everybody, and thank you so much for downloading this message today. You are listening to BibleStudyPodcasts.org. Today is Monday, April the 11th of 2011, and as always, I'm your host, Toby Logsdon. God bless you guys, and thank you again for downloading this message. We are blessed to have you here with us today. Uh, Hopefully, you guys are doing well. We are continuing to have, I guess, what is considered a really wet winter here in uh, in the Northwest, up here in the Seattle area. Uh, I've been told that we are getting a lot more rain this winter and and into the spring now, uh, getting a lot more rain than we typically do up here. Uh, I'm adjusting, you know, being from the the Southwest, you know, I'm a little bit more used to dry heat, and we usually get uh, about as much rain in a year down in Las Vegas as we get up here in a day uh, <laughs> here in the Seattle area, but uh, but it's all good. I, I am actually kind of getting used to it and developing an appreciation for it, but I'll say this, when the sun comes out here, it feels so good. Um, but you know, uh, last week we, we didn't see the sun all week almost, but, uh, still a good week, still a good week. Um, hope you guys don't mind, but every other week we, we've kind of made a little bit of an adjustment here. Every other week we're doing a Romans lesson and, uh, on the weeks in between the intermittent weeks, we are putting in, um, the, the first Thessalonians series that I'm preaching at Linwood Evangelical Free Church. So hopefully you guys are enjoying that. Uh, I think uh, the book of First Thessalonians is fascinating. It covers a, a wide variety of things, and uh, you know it's it's a little bit different format because it's a sermon. It's you know somewhere around forty minutes instead of a, a twenty minute lesson like we do here on the podcast. But hopefully, you guys are getting something out of it. Uh, that's what the Bible's written for for us to uh, to grow from it. And uh, there's no part of Scripture that you cannot personally grow from, including First Thessalonians, which I actually think is uh, is a great book. Uh, it's been a, a great study so far. Anyway, just to remind you guys real quick, um, for those of you who like apologetics, maybe you've heard about, you know, the in the news, you know, this new book has come out called Love Wins, and it's extremely controversial. Uh, I read the first chapter uh, last Monday. I just opened it and read the first chapter last Monday, and I have to say that some of the, the questions in there are so intellectually dishonest. See, um, as somebody who has studied apologetics and, you know, I've done the Q&A and, and all that kind of stuff, you know, with the podcast, uh, I, I've discovered something about questions. Uh, the old saying that there's no such thing as a bad question really isn't true. Uh, there are bad questions. There are two types of questions. There are questions which are genuinely trying to gather information and then there are questions that are trying to direct you toward uh, a person's goal, or t- toward their idea. Um, that's what lawyers do. You know, when when they are uh, giving questions, they're they're trying to 
uh, to, to steer the conversation, steer the person being questioned in a certain direction. And that's exactly what Rob Bell is doing in his book. Uh, the guy is a heretic. Rob Bell is, is, is a heretic. Um, the, the questions in there are so intellectually dishonest, it's, uh, it's really sickening. And yeah, anyway, uh, you know, his book has, has sold, you know, it was on the bestseller list, I'm sure. Um, I, I've tried not to pay too much attention to the attention that it's getting in the media, but hey, you know, it is what it is. Uh, at least I'm, I'm doing my part. I'm reading it so that when people have questions about it, I can respond to it. I can have an educated opinion about the book. Um, but if you guys are interested in the topic of, of hell, which is a, an incredibly difficult thing to talk about, let's just be honest about that much, right? It's a really hard thing to talk about. So if you're looking for an honest discussion about the matter, um, my book is on Kindle. It's called uh, Get the Hell Out of Here, an examination of the relationship between love, hell, and God. Uh, and this is a, a book that um, is based on a study that we did here on the podcast. So if you have an Amazon Kindle, or if you have an iPad, pod or if you have a computer um, you can you can download any Kindle app and uh, get the book through the Amazon Kindle for those of you who are wondering if I'm going to uh, publish it on iTunes as an iBook no I'm probably not in, there's a good reason for that uh, iTunes or, or Apple uh, basically every program that they make they make it so that you have to have um, a Mac you have to have uh, an Apple computer basically to uh, to design something with them. So for me to publish it on iBooks or t- as an iBook, uh, I have to buy a Mac, which is like a, a sixteen seventeen hundred dollar investment minimum. Uh, yeah, no thanks. But anyway, if that's something you're interested in, you can get it on Kindle. Well, we do have a lot to cover today, so let's go ahead and get started with just a quick word of prayer. God, we thank you so much for who you are, for what you've done in our lives, for making us your children when. We really just deserve to be children of your wrath. And so, God, I just ask that today you would show us why the gospel message is so urgent. Teach us, Lord, to be like you, to see things the way you see them. Give us an eternal perspective, Lord, and give us a love for people that will make a difference in this world as we study your word today. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, one of the things that we've seen in our study of the 13th chapter of Romans, is the importance of love. Uh, that's really one of the central themes here of Romans chapter 13. And we're not just talking about loving our brothers and sisters in Christ, which, of course, we should be doing. We should, of course, be showing love to them, but also love toward our neighbors, which includes anyone and everyone, including the government and including our worst enemies. Now, that's not an easy task by any stretch of the imagination, but we have to remember what Paul said back in Romans chapter 5, verse 5, when he wrote, the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. So the fact that we have love within us is evidence of the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. And the godly love that we've been called to demonstrate is something that someone who doesn't follow Jesus or who doesn't know Jesus neither understands nor has. And as a matter of fact, we also know that love is a part of the fruit of the Spirit. We're talking about godly love here. But what does godly love demand from us? Does it demand action? I'd have to argue that, yeah, it does require action. Paul's told us that we should fulfill any obligations we might have toward anyone, whether that be taxes, honor, or what have you, but he's told us that the one obligation 
we should never feel as if we've completely fulfilled is the obligation to love. Now, you should be able to pick up a sense of desperation in what Paul's writing here. He takes the command to love our neighbor very seriously. But why? It's because eternity is looming. And if we really love people the way that we've been called and equipped by the Holy Spirit to love them, we should want to know that the people we know and love will be spending eternity in the presence of the Lord in heaven. In verse 11, here in uh, Romans chapter 13, Paul basically told us to wake up and realize that the time for us to be preparing not only our own hearts and minds, but the hearts and minds of our neighbors is now. It's now. It was basically a wake-up call. And let's be honest, there are far too many of us who are more than happy to just kind of roll over and hit the snooze button and go right back to sleep. But in light of the fact that Paul's told us to wake up, the words that he writes next are actually kind of ironic. He writes here in Romans chapter 13, verse 12, The night is almost gone, and the day is near. Therefore, let us lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Now, it's not normal for people to wake up before the night is through, is it? I mean, in Paul's day, in in Paul's era, they didn't have alarm clocks or anything, work was done uh, in the daytime. So it might seem as though it would have made a lot more sense for Paul to have said, uh, the day has begun, so get out of bed. Or maybe he could have said that the day isn't over yet, so get back to work. Yeah, you know, those things might have made a lot more sense, but only if we didn't already know what Paul meant when he referred to the present time as night. The Holy Spirit told us through Paul's pen that it was night 1950 years ago. How much more true must that be today? But why is the present time referred to as night? Well, when Jesus was on earth in the flesh, when he was uh, in his earthly ministry, one of the things that he consistently likened himself to was light. One of his claims to being God involved the metaphor of light when he said, I am the light of the world. But someone might say, well, isn't Jesus still the light of the world? And the answer is, yeah, he is. He shines through his followers. He not only said that he was the light, but he said that his followers were to be the light as well. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 13, we read him saying to his followers, you are the light of the world. And then he says, a city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Now, what he was saying is that his followers would be like a city that can be spotted on a dark night. If you've ever been in pitch black darkness, you know that even the faintest flicker of light will grab your attention. And it wasn't uncommon in Jesus' time for travelers to travel well into the evening, being that it was much cooler in the evening time than it was during the day, and so they could make more progress as, uh, as the sun was going down. But if night came too quickly, travelers would look for lights on the horizon to find some sort of shelter to take for the night. So when Jesus referred to his people, his followers, as a city on a hill that cannot be hidden, the metaphor here is that the light we shine should draw people to us, which would give us, in turn, the opportunity to direct people to the real light, Jesus. Then there was a time when Jesus and his followers came across a man who had been blind from birth. The disciples had this this false idea uh, that a lot of people today still have, by the way. They had this false idea in their minds that if somebody was suffering in any way, shape, or form, it was because God must have been inflicting his wrath 
on that person or on those people for their sin. The idea was that their condition was a result of their sin. And again, that's a false understanding of suffering. And so when they asked Jesus whose sin the man is paying for, uh, you know, his own sin or his parents' sin, Jesus responds by saying, neither. He says, quote, it was neither that this man sinned nor his parents, but it was so that the works of God might be displayed in him. That's from John chapter 9, verse 3. Jesus then says something that might give us some insight into what Paul's trying to say here, telling his disciples, we must work the works of him who sent me as long as it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Verses 4 and 5 there in John chapter 9. And then he proceeded to heal the blind man. So the implication there was that as soon as Jesus left, it would be night. The principle that we're supposed to get from this occasion is that while Jesus was in the world, he was the light. And when he returned to heaven, the world was plunged into darkness. And the result is that the only light that's around in the world is the light that's reflected by those of us who follow Jesus. And it's in this sense that we, as followers of Jesus, have become the light of the world, like a city on a hill. Now, when Paul wrote this letter to the Roman followers of Jesus, the Lord had already returned to heaven. And so thus, uh, darkness had already settled in on the earth. However, there was the expectation of Jesus's imminent return. He had promised to return, but he didn't really give any indication as to when that might be, although he did reveal certain signs that would mark the fact that the time was coming soon. So it's with that mindset that Paul writes, the night is almost over and the day is near. That can only mean one thing, friends. That can only mean one thing. Remember that the age that we live in now won't last forever. In light of eternity, we don't have much longer until Christ returns, which means that the day of judgment is imminent. The world isn't going to get any better on its own. While we've been called to live for the kingdom of God, it's only in our hearts during this age. The age in which Jesus returns to establish an earthly kingdom, which he'll reign over from Jerusalem for a thousand years, is something that we as people can't usher in. It's something that can only happen when Jesus physically returns. The seals from the book of Revelation, the trumpets, the vials, these are all judgments that are going to fall upon the earth after the Lord has removed his own people. Now this day that Paul is referring to will be a day of sorrow for unbelievers. Jesus said to unbelievers, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many works of power? And then I will declare to them, Jesus says, and then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. That's from Matthew chapter 7, verses 22 and 23. Speaking of the same day, John records Jesus as saying, He who rejects me and does not receive my sayings has one who judges him. The word I spoke is what will judge him at the last day. That's John chapter 12, verse 48. It was this day that Paul warned unbelieving Jews about back in Romans chapter 2, verse 5, when he wrote, But because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. However, the day that Jesus and Paul were warning unbelievers about is the same day that the followers of Jesus will see the Lord Jesus and will become like him. Jesus said, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on 
the last day. That's from John chapter 6, verse 44. And it was this same day that Paul said that followers of Jesus would be, quote, blameless into the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's from 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 8. So in one sense, the day of the Lord is the most glorious, amazing day in all of history, and we're waiting for that day to come. Those who trusted in Jesus for their salvation will be rewarded for their faith and will be forever separated from the presence of sin and will forever bask in the glory of God. But in another sense, this will be the most terrible day in all of history because those who refuse to trust in Jesus will have sealed their fate sitting under the wrath of God. In light of this reality, don't just sit there and wait for it. Don't just sit there and wait for it. Keep shining your light in the world, drawing people to the light of Jesus. How are we supposed to do that? Paul's going to tell us. He continues by giving us some practical insight into living a life that's like that city on a hill, writing in verses 13 and 14, let us behave properly as in the day not in carousing and drunkenness not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality not in strife and jealousy but put on the lord jesus christ and make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lusts so paul starts out here by saying let us behave properly as in the day now remember the current age is likened to night will become like jesus in the day of his return. Paul says, don't wait for that day to come to start living as if you've already been made like Jesus, sinless in all of your ways. Act now like you will then. This means avoiding certain types of behavior. Some people are sleeping in this dark age, and some are engaging in acts or or actions which resemble those who live in the darkness. Paul lists a total of six of those behaviors. The first pair of behaviors that Paul lists are carousing and drunkenness. I'm not sure, too sure I like the word carousing because it's, it's not really a word that we use too much anymore. Uh, to carouse basically means to drink alcohol and to drink a lot of it. And that's why it's paired with the word drunkenness. Now, according to Thayer's Greek lexicon, this specifically referred in Paul's time to, quote, a nocturnal and riotous procession of half-drunken and frolicsome fellows who, after supper, parade through the streets with torches and music in honor of Bacchus or some other deity and sing and play before houses of male and female friends, hence used generally of feasts and drinking parties that are protracted till late at night and indulge in revelry, end quote. Now, Bacchus was the Greek god of wine, and these festivals, which were thrown to honor him, would result in people marching through the streets of the city, making a lot of noise, uh, singing, doing whatever, and would commonly be characterized by public acts of sexual immorality. Now, Paul's not saying that we shouldn't consume alcohol in moderation. Instead, this has to do with getting loaded, really, and losing control of yourself. Paul elsewhere instructed followers, do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. That's from Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18. See, any time a substance is controlling your actions, rather than the Holy Spirit controlling your actions, it's a recipe for disaster. It's sin. Paul's saying that this is one of the actions that we're to avoid. If it won't happen in heaven, why on earth would we want it now? The second pair of behaviors that Paul instructs us to avoid are sexual promiscuity and sensuality. See, God designed us 
to enjoy sex. He really did. He, he designed us to enjoy sex, which makes it very tempting for us to engage in sexually promiscuous behavior. However, this is the point. God's design for sex is for it to be in the context of marriage between one man and one woman. Any sexual activity outside of that design, outside of that context, is sin. Now, the world will tell you that sex is as natural as eating or sleeping. I mean, what do you do when you're hungry? You eat, right? That's natural. That's what people were designed to do. What do you do when you're tired? You sleep, right? Again, that's a a natural thing, and that's what people were designed to do. And so the world throws sexual immorality into the same category. What do you do when your hormones are raging, The world will tell you that you control your sexual appetite by giving into it. The word of God, however, the word of God says, flee from it. Flee from it. Don't wrestle with it. Don't even walk away from it. Flee from it. The word flee, the Greek word flee, gives the image of a bird taking flight at even the slightest sign of danger. That is the most surefire way to avoid falling into temptation to sexual sin. In other words, the very moment that sexual temptation comes into your mind, you must immediately divert your attention to something else. The moment that the temptation presents itself is the weakest that that temptation is ever going to be. It only gets stronger and stronger and more enticing by the second after that. The world will say, well, you know, if if God created sex, then isn't sex good? Because everything that God made is good. God can't create anything bad or evil, can he? Now, see, this is a a loaded argument if there ever was one. Uh, The truth is that everything is good, uh, absolutely everything, including sex. However, everything is only good in the context that God created it for. Sure, food is good, but if you indulge in it and it causes you to develop health risks, it's not good. Sleep is good, but if you sleep your life away and get habitually lazy, it's not good. Steel is a good thing, but if you take a a lump of steel and you use it to make a knife and then you kill somebody with it, it's not good. And so it is with sex. It's good in the context that God designed it for, that is marriage, but it's not good outside of that context. Paul's instruction is to avoid it. You won't be sexually immoral in heaven, so why would you want to be sexually immoral now? That's the point. The final behaviors that Paul instructs us to avoid are strife and jealousy. Now, literally translated, these words would would say infighting and zeal. Now, zeal is actually a perfect illustration of what we just talked about. Zeal can be a good thing, but only in the right context. If it's misdirected, it can be a bad thing. Paul himself was once a zealous Jew, but his zeal was misdirected so that it was working against God. But if a person is zealous to bring glory to Jesus, that's a good thing. But if one's zeal is misdirected towards somebody within the body of Christ, it will tear the community of believers apart. And Paul's saying, don't do that. Paul closes out this chapter, chapter 13, by instructing us to put on the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, live now as if you are Jesus, who was sinless in all of his ways. Act like him. This means to make the deliberate choice to resist your urges to engage in sinful behavior and to bring every thought and every action under the authority of and into obedience to 
the Lord Jesus. This isn't something that'll just happen automatically, unfortunately, you know, once you put your trust for salvation in Jesus. It's not something that just is going to happen magically. It's a choice that you have to make. This is something that you must choose to do. And the sooner you start getting into the habit of making good choices to avoid sin, the easier it will become. That means that now is the time to portray the same qualities that Jesus portrayed. Love people the way that Jesus loved people. And hate sin the way that Jesus hated sin. Live in light of eternity. Because if you do that, the world will notice the light in your life the same way that someone on a long journey through darkness would notice a city on a hill. As Paul instructed the Ephesians, you were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. There's definitely an urgency here, friends. There is definitely an urgency. Eternity is at stake, and none of us know, none of us know when Jesus will come back to bring us home. All we know is that the day is closer now than it's ever been. Don't get yourself into the habit of living as if Jesus is never coming back. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for your word and how it encourages us and instructs us to live lives that please you. God, I pray that that would be a motivating factor in all of our lives, Lord, that we would strive to please you, that we would desire that above and beyond uh, the desire to sin or the desire to follow our own ways, Lord. We know that our hearts are deceitful, and Lord, I pray that you would teach us to follow your word instead of the ways of the world. God, help us to be like a city on a hill. Help us to be a light that shines in the darkness because that's what you've called us to be, Lord. I pray that you would provide instruction to each one of us individually, Lord. Teach us to do that. Teach us to become more like you, to love like you do in order that we can bring more people to you. And God, give us the urgency. Give us the urgency that Paul felt when he wrote these words. We love you, Lord. We pray that you will bless and protect this message. In Jesus' name, amen. This message has been brought to you by BibleStudyPodcast.org. We are a listener-supported ministry. If this is your first time listening to us, we thank you so much for joining us, and we ask nothing further from you. But if this is a ministry that you rely on for regular spiritual teaching, we do depend on your financial support to keep us going and growing. If you'd like to make a donation to BibleStudyPodcast.org to keep us going and reaching thousands of people around the world, you can go to our website, BibleStudyPodcasts.org, and you can make a donation on the right-hand side by clicking on the support box. Again, we do rely on your support, and we thank you so much for your financial participation in this ministry, which enables us to continue in our mission of teaching timeless truths in these truthless times. God bless you. Thank you so much for listening today, and keep growing closer to Jesus. But you were the one whose beauty shines on time after time.